0: If you are new here, I'm Aaron, I'm one of the pastors, this is true, also one of the pastors here. Um, If you'd like to connect with us and other opportunities, uh, you can uh, download the app is one way to connect with us. You can also go over here after the service and fill out a card and connect that way. If you do that, uh, we'll get in touch with you, let you know about uh, ministry opportunities. We also have a gift for you there. Uh, But more importantly, um, if you're here for the first time this morning, God is here. God wants to meet you and speak to you. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. Yep. So, Cool. So the last week is chapter seven through nine, right? Yep. 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 So I'm looking forward to it. Got your church wide. It's going to be a good time. So I'll just Thanks. pray for you and yep. cut you loose. Jesus, I thank you so much for um, Aaron. I thank you for what he's going to share uh, this morning. I ask that you would help him to clearly articulate what you've put on his heart. I ask that you'd speak to us through your word, um, that you'd move in our hearts. We thank you that your word. Um, Uh, is more than just written words. It's a living word. um, And you move in your people when we read it and when we let it work in our hearts. So would it work in our hearts this morning, Jesus? I thank you so much for this morning that we get to celebrate uh, the gospel. We get to celebrate uh, your story through history and what you're doing uh, even up until now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Drew. All right. Have you guys been good week I have been I've been looking forward to today for a good number of weeks now. Uh, a number of years ago, probably like a close to a decade ago uh, I had a conversation uh, with a gal that I had known uh, for a while, uh, a little while. I didn't know her real well, Um, but she had hinted to me that things were not going well. in her home, and that was about the extent of it. Um, She didn't ask uh, for anything. She didn't ask to meet with me or to speak with me about it. It was in a conversation that was unrelated. She sort of let on um, that things were not going well. Um, A couple of months later, uh, a conversation uh, that I was in again with the same gal um, she once again, uh, in a conversation unrelated to that, uh, spoke up about some, uh, gave a little bit, a little bit more uh, emotion behind things are not really well. And uh, I, when we had that conversation, I, I found myself feeling a little bit bad that I had not followed up with her after our previous conversation. And so I asked her the question, I said, do you want to talk about that, whatever it is? She had not given me any details. Do you wanna talk about that sometime? And uh, she said, um, sure, I would, I would appreciate that. And so we set a time, it was like a week or two after that, and uh, she came by uh, to see me, we sat down, and she began to describe uh, some things that were going on in her home uh, that uh, pertained to her husband. And um, it was very, uh, it was very sort of vague, not very specific. She was extremely careful in the words that she was choosing to describe what was happening. And we talked for probably an hour to an hour and a half, and it wasn't until like the last, like maybe 10 or 15 minutes of the conversation that she worked up the courage to actually say, this is what's going on. Um, There is things going on in my home that are not right, that uh, have put me and my children in harm's way, But secondly, I have been told that if I speak up about these things, it will lead to me losing my children, and it will lead to my financial ruin. And I've been told those things by my husband, which is why I've been hesitant to say anything, What struck me about that conversation, and again, uh, over the years, uh, many years since that conversation, I've had many similar conversations. What struck me about that conversation is how deeply this woman had been convinced of her powerlessness It was something that she believed entirely that she was, in fact, powerless to do anything about her situation without bringing great harm, further harm, greater harm upon herself. So, I took her to a lawyer, and the lawyer said, no, you're going to be fine, $200. I'm gonna tell you this morning a story about a woman, and I wanna focus on some uh, specific details. It's a story that Skip has introduced over the last couple of weeks, but what I wanna do is I'm gonna give you just a brief review of the storyline, because it's fascinating, but then what I wanna do this morning is I want to um, uh, dive a little bit deeper in creating a better, more detailed character sketch of the characters involved in this, And then I want to look at Esther's role in responding and draw some observations from that. Ready? Here we go. So the story of Esther goes like this. Uh, You heard the beginning part. The king gets rid of his wife because she's uh, insubordinate, won't dance for his friends, finds a new wife in Esther. She's a Jew, but she's hidden her identity and she's made queen of the entire land. Esther has a cousin who has been her caretaker, who stays at the city gate to hear news about how Esther is doing, and her friend, her caretaker, her cousin, Mordecai, uh, refuses to obey the king's command that the second in command in the kingdom, Haman, Mr. Vice President, that when he comes and goes from the city, people are to pay him homage. They're supposed to show respect. Mordecai refuses to do so. And Haman gets very angry at this. In fact, he gets so angry that he goes to the king and says, hey, I have an idea. Uh, There's a group of people that live in our kingdom, the Jews, And they refuse to obey our customs. At least one of them does, but probably all of them. How about we kill them all? And the king says, okay. And so he gives Haman his signet ring and gives him all the resources he needs and says, go ahead, have fun, kill them all, set a date, we'll get it done. So uh, Haman's pretty excited about this. They issue a decree. He signs it with the king's signature, which means it cannot be revoked even by the king himself. And they schedule a date to wipe out the Jewish people. Mordecai hears about this. He says, this is not good. Contacts Esther and says, Esther, you got to do something about this. Esther replies and says, "Uh, just so you know, if I go into the king uninvited, it could cost me my life. And Mordecai responds and says, just so you know, if you don't, it'll cost you your life. And so Esther spends three days praying and fasting with her friends and... uh, makes a decision to go see the king. The king welcomes her in, says, what do you want? She says, I want to have dinner with you and your VP with Haman. And he says, great, let's do it. I'll see you tonight. So they prepare the banquet. The king and Haman come. They have this wonderful party. And as they leave, Haman sees Mordecai. And he goes home and he tells his wife and his friends, he says, You guys, I just had the most amazing evening. I was the only guest of honor in a special banquet for the king and the queen. It was just the three of us. Can you believe how fantastically my career is going? However, all of my enjoyment has been robbed by the sight of Mordecai the Jew as I was leaving. This date for wiping out the Jews can't possibly come soon enough. And so his wife and his friends say, well, then kill him, just be done with it. Just build the gallows and hang him on it. And, And Haman says, hey, that's a fantastic idea. Let's do that right now. Because the queen has invited us to another party tomorrow. And I want to enjoy that party. And it will be hard to enjoy that party if Mordecai is still alive. So Haman builds a gallows. Meanwhile, the king is having a hard time sleeping. The king has someone come read him some stories. A story comes up about Mordecai, who saved the king's life. The king says, hey, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? And they say, no, nothing was ever done. And he said, well, we should do something for Mordecai. Well, Haman finishes up the gallows. He comes to tell the king first thing in the morning, hey, I built a gallows. Can I kill Mordecai? But the king doesn't know why he's there. Someone says, hey, Haman's at the door. King says, let him in. Hey, Haman, what would you do for someone that you would want to honor and, and, and like, award, give a reward for great work? And Haman says to himself, Ooh, I bet he's talking about me. This is what I would do. I would put him on a nice horse, put him in the king's clothing, and I'd take him through the city and make everyone bow. And the king says, Fantastic. I want you to do that for Mordecai. <sighs> Poor Haman. So Haman says, Okay. So he takes Mordecai. He walks through the city, all bow to the great Mordecai, comes back, leaves Mordecai at the palace, and he goes home, and he's just humiliated. But hey, I have another party. So he gets himself together, gets dressed up, and he goes back to the party with the king and queen. At this party, the king has said to Esther, um, whatever it is that you want, I'll give it to you. Whatever request you would make, I will grant it. In fact, if you were to request up to half of what I own, half of my kingdom, I would gladly give it to you. And so the stage has been set. The way that the story ends, and I'm going to come back and revisit this ending, but the way that the story ends is Esther calls out Haman. and She says, this man here is set to kill not only me, but all of my people and the plan is foiled. I want to offer you three character sketches from this story, and this is why. Before we look at Esther, I want to draw some observations about decisions that she made. This is why I offer you these three character sketches. It's my observation that we tend to interpret characters that we read about in the Bible as being one-dimensional. They're either the hero or the villain. And yet, rarely do you meet people in real life who are so easily identified as one or the other. Some of the best people you know have problems, and some of the worst people you know have some good qualities. And this complicates Esther's uh, choice of action which I'm going to explain, but let's, let's I'm going to offer you three character sketches. First, there is Haman. Haman is actually a very successful and loved leader. Chapter 3, verse 1, After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. He advanced him and established his authority over all of the princes of the land. Not only does the king recognize in Haman this great capacity for leadership, but Haman has a wife and friends who care about them. We know that because he is is described in a couple of occasions as consulting them. Chapter 5, verse 10. Haman controlled himself, and he went to his house, and he called for his friends and his wife to seek counsel. So Haman is not only a madly gifted leader— but he is, a res- he is respected among his peers and his wife. Slight problem, Haman is also a murderous rage monster who wants those who embarrass him dead, as in dead. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Haman disdained to lay hands on just Mordecai, for they told him the people of Mordecai, or they told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews just in case. Chapter 5, verse 11, And then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and the servants of the king. But then Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai. Remember in Ecclesiastes talking about the capacity to enjoy? Mordecai has no capacity to enjoy all the fruit of his great success because he has an uncontrolled rage directed towards those who dare to disrespect him. That's Haman. Then there's the king, and your Bible might call him Xerxes or it might call him Ahasuerus. We have some evidence that the king is a kind and sensitive husband. Chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near, and she touched the top of the scepter. And then the king said to her, What is troubling you, my queen? What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. On the flip side, this is the same king who's totally cool with genocide. This is the king who said to Haman, Oh, you want to wipe out the Jews? Yeah, sure, that's fine. It's no big deal. Uh, here's my ring, write the law, here's some money, Uh, you'll probably need to hire a bunch of, you know, help Uh, if you're going to kill an entire race, you'll need some assistance, so here you go, here's your resources, have fun. And then there's Mordecai. And this this time through the book of Esther, I'll confess to you, I'm actually seeing Mordecai a little bit different. Mordecai is wise and affectionately protective of Esther. Chapter 2, verse 7, when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And verse 11, every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Very attentive, very protective, and yet what we see in Mordecai is that Mordecai is also a proud man with a tendency for the dramatic. Let me explain. Chapter 3 tells us that the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Don't you know that this is a requirement? And now it was that when they had spoken daily to him, he would not listen to them. Two notes about this. Number one, the king himself had ordered that people pay respect to Haman. Number two, and this is the part that's surprising me, the narrator gives no clear motive for Mordecai's unwillingness to bow down or pay homage. In fact, the scripture offers no compelling religious motivation for his unwillingness. There is no law in the Jewish law that says, don't show respect to foreign leaders. The narrator never makes a case for Mordecai's decision. It just simply says, Mordecai said, no, I'm not going to show respect to that guy. I refuse to pay homage to him, to show him the respect that is required of leaders. And then, and then, so, so track with me, so Mordecai says, no, I will not, I will not show respect, I will not pay homage, I refuse. No religious motivation that's indicated. And it's as a result of his unwillingness that the rest of the Jewish nation is about to be wiped out. And then he says to Esther, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. Another note. The narrator gives no indication that Mordecai is actually making a valid claim or that God inspired that claim. So he does say, God will raise up help from another source. But then he goes further and he tells Esther, if you don't do something about this problem, you're going to die. And then he says, hey, who knows whether or not you have attained your position for such a time as this. No matter how you shake it, these three men have created a mess that Esther has now been given the task to clean up. Esther's the only one who's actually not involved in this mess, and she's the only Jew who could probably survive because no one knows she's a Jew. And Mordecai says, if you don't do something about this, then you will pay the price with your life. And Esther says, you understand that if I do something about this, I will pay the price with my life. I want to offer you five observations about Esther's role in confronting an evil that wasn't hers, and that she did not create or contribute towards. The first one is this. Esther committed herself to action. I am going to do something about this. I want to speak to you just for a second from Aaron Weiser. This is not from the scripture. This is just me. What I have find, what I've found over and over is that when I'm talking to someone who is a victim inside of their circumstances, meaning someone is being harmful to them or abusive to them. That inaction, the inability to do something about what is happening, arises from an inability to clearly identify the character as either a hero or a villain. And so they will say things like, yes, he does this, but he also does this. And this is really great. Yes, he has committed these crimes, but he also has these positive qualities. So, I I don't think of him as an evil person, therefore, I don't know exactly how to proceed. The truth is, we don't have to make bad people out of bad decisions. We can let bad decisions stand as they are. It's a bad decision. Is King Ahasuerus a bad person? Don't know that. Did he make a bad decision? A really bad decision. With that said, Esther did not shy away from God. Calling Haman what he was in chapter 7, verse 6. A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Esther committed herself to action. She reconciled for herself the harm that could come as a result of her decision to confront this evil. She says, If I perish, I perish, but I'm going to do something. Secondly, Esther drew on her relational resources. Esther reached out to people that she had some affiliation and connection with. In fact, she reached out to Mordecai. She reached out to her people there in the city who knew Mordecai. And she reached out to her handmaidens, the women who tended to her needs as queen, and asked all of them, she says, I'm about to take action against evil, and I'm asking that you would support me in this, that you would pray for me in this that you would cover this in prayer as I take a step towards confronting this evil. She drew on her relational resources. It is one of the most basic strategies of abusiveness is to keep the recipient of that abuse isolated and alone. It's to reduce their power over the situation by refusing to allow them to reach out for support from others. Don't you dare talk about this to anyone. Esther says, no, this is wrong, and I'm going to stand up against it, but I'm not doing this alone. I need the support of the people that are around me. Number three, stay with me here. Esther disobeyed her husband's command. Esther says, I will not submit myself to evil. We have a little bit of a, I don't know how to describe it. I, I should say we have a little bit of confusion I think sometimes that persists in Christian circles regarding what submission, what the, 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 the scriptures call the wife to submit, what that looks like. But I will tell you this, and stay with me, don't walk out, let me finish. The call to submission is not absolute. Let me tell you why I make that claim. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. This is the Apostle Peter speaking. He says, "...submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evil and the praise of those who do right." So the Apostle Peter says, in the same language that he says in the next chapter, he says, "Submit." "...wives, submit to your husbands." He says, "...submit to your earthly authorities." And then Peter was killed for one reason, because he would not submit to earthly authorities. He refused, because Peter understood that the call to submit to that authority is not absolute, because anyone who is under the authority of God serves a higher authority And our submission to human authorities is done out of love and obedience to God, insofar as that submission does not put us on the side of evil. Esther not only disobeyed her husband's command, she broke the law in the process. She says, Mordecai, you do realize it's illegal. It is is against the law for me to walk into his room without an invite into his chambers. And the punishment for breaking that law is death. This was not like a roulette, like, hey, you can come in, and I'll decide if you survive. No, it was written law. You do not come in uninvited to the king's chambers, queen included. This was not disobedience out of personal preference. This was not disobedience out of ill will. This was not disobedience because she felt like he had made a poor choice or because she thought he had a... Uh, This was a bad idea. This was Esther's refusal to give cover for evil. Her refusal to sit by and allow sin to run riot. This was Esther finding her strength to stand against treachery and say, I will not give cover to this. I will not be silent as this happens. Esther disobeyed her husband's command. Number four, Esther honored her husband. I say, wait a second, how can you do both? Esther decides that she will not excuse herself from integrity, because others have. Esther believes that there is a way to stand up to evil without becoming it. Powerless people dishonor. They gossip, they complain, They're passive-aggressive. A person who has a sense of the power given by God can stand against evil with confidence without returning evil for evil. Esther honored her husband. The evidence of her husband's sense of honor and respect is in the fact that he did not fire her like he fired the last lady. Why was Vashti out? She dishonored her husband. I'm not saying he was morally justified. I'm saying that's what he felt. That scenario left the king feeling that she had disrespected and dishonored him, and he says, no, we can't have that. You're out. Esther comes to the king, also in defiance, of his decree, but makes that approach with an attitude and an environment of honor. And so she gains an audience. There's this passage in 1 Peter, again, talking about submission. First Peter three. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Once again, I would suggest. Um, well, my experience has been, I have heard this passage used in a way that is inappropriate and out of context. Peter is not offering a pathway to stand up against abject evil, abusiveness, treachery. What Peter is talking about is a couple who lives together where the husband is not a believer, he is not of faith, he is not on board with that, and yet she, through her, her transformation of character and integrity, provides a testimony of the goodness of God to her husband. And yet I've heard people say, well, you know, um, my husband told me that I'm supposed to keep my mouth shut. In fact, he quoted a scripture to me about women keeping their mouths shut. Esther did not keep her mouth shut, but she spoke with honor and with integrity. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not give the devil an opportunity. You know who else in this story should have listened to their wife? Haman. In between parties, Haman comes home, tells his wife, she says, build a gallows, kill the guy. He builds a gallows, and then he has to take Mordecai around the city. All hail Mordecai. He's so embarrassed, he's so humiliated. He comes back home and he tells his wife, you will not believe what happened. I went to get permission to kill this guy and I ended up parading him around the city on a horse in the king's robe, the most embarrassing day of my life. And do you know what Haman's wife says? Oh, is he a Jew? Because if he is, you're going to die. That was the advice of Haman's wife. Oh, uh, yeah, you should know that you're going to lose and Mordecai is going to win. That was the wife's advice. Haman says, ah, "You're so helpless" and goes to the party and is dead by the end of the evening. Esther honored her husband. I will speak the truth. Lastly, Esther crushed evil with grace and truth. Those were her weapons. I'm just going to read to you really quickly how this story wraps up. Now, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther again on the second day as they drank wine at their banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It will be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. And then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request for we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed to be killed and to be annihilated (laughs) and she says this now if we had only been sold as slaves men and women I would have remained silent for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king (laughs) in other words listen if we had just been sold into slavery I would not be bothering you with this that would have been fine You're an important guy. you got a lot going on. And then the king said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. And now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the king's servants, said, hey, uh, you know, Haman built a gallows down the street that's not been used. And the king said, hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. I would suggest that when a woman... stands against evil with grace and truth. It is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. Esther does not respond to her husband's apathy with apathy. She does not respond to her cousin's lack of tact with tactlessness. And she does not respond to havens evil with evil. She responds with grace and truth. And that's why the book is called Esther. Invite the worship team up. We learn to walk with grace and truth by looking to the example of Jesus. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We learn to walk with that grace and truth by looking to the example of Jesus, and we display that grace and truth By laying down our lives for those who do not deserve our sacrifice. Esther stepped into the greatest calling that any person can step into on this side of heaven. And that is the call to lay my own life down as a sacrifice in order to rescue those who don't deserve that sacrifice. That is the gospel. And Esther embraced it. She stepped into it uh, with grace and truth. Would you stand? You want to come? I had asked one of our uh, elders' wives, Rhonda, prior to the service, if she sensed anything uh, from the Lord in response to this message to share. So she's going to share something with you right now. Oops, you're good. Good morning. I'd like to encourage you, if you are one of these women in, this, uh, in a situation that you do not continue to isolate yourself or disqualify yourself from maybe some of the things that um, you have done or you played a part. You're not alone. We have many resources through our church in our body, our elders, our pastors, You're already being brave by enduring the evil. It's time to stand in your God-given power for good. Today is your time now for such a time as this. We have a couple of ways to respond in worship. I'm gonna have prayer team ministry members over here. If you're in that place where you need to draw resources in order to take action, uh, they would love to pray with you. Um, this is a time where you can take communion. Again, uh, every time we take communion, we're, we're reasserting where our strength lies, where our hope lies, where our life comes from, and that is through Jesus Christ crucified, his body and his blood given to us, grace and truth. Uh, You can also give. They're offering receptacles along the back, but let's come before the Lord now and worship him. Let's just take a moment in silence as we come into uh, worship. you have called us as a church to be a refuge and a safe haven. God, I pray uh, for those here this morning who are, feel that they are far from you who feel lost when it comes to walking with grace and truth, who are not familiar with your example, I pray that today would be the day that we reach out to you, that we cry out to you, and we make ourselves dependent upon you. We love you. We thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name. I know that God is good because of the experience of his goodness in my life. Because through the cross, he has made all of that goodness available to me. And others have made it known to me. Paul makes a fascinating statement in the first chapter of Colossians. He says, I've given my life to make up for what the ministry of Christ lacked. Jesus made all of the goodness of God available to us, and Paul had given his life to make people aware of that gift. Some of you right now in this room feel like you've been so far removed from the goodness of God. Speak up and let us be God's goodness to you. We would consider it an honor and a privilege to walk with you and put his goodness on display in your life and in your situation. I love the word of God. Hey, I'm going to ask the ministry, uh, the prayer team ministry people to stay put if you would like to go pray with them after the service. uh, They would be glad to meet with you. Uh, There are house churches meeting tonight. There are senior high and junior high youth groups tonight. We don't officially end until 1230. So if you can stick around and help pick up, that's always a big blessing to our uh, teardown teams. God bless you. May his peace be upon you this week. You are dismissed.